From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. That's the secret sauce, and I think that's the challenge that many healthcare organizations have have faced today is they have access to tons of data, but what do we do with it? That's Kyle Swartz on leveraging data to improve pre-documentation planning and point-of-care efficiency. We'll hear more from Kyle and Dr. Matt Lambert on artificial intelligence's place in risk adjustment and quality performance, why human intervention is still a necessary part of the process, and the benefits of going all-in on value-based care. But first, a word from our sponsor. A proven payment solution for patients' out-of-pocket cost, the Care Credit Health, Wellness, and Personal Care Credit Card gives cardholders a convenient way to pay for treatments and procedures. For healthcare providers navigating financial and operational challenges resulting from the coronavirus pandemic, Care Credit can help reduce time and effort devoted to billing and collections while increasing patient satisfaction. Care Credit currently has over 11 million cardholders and is accepted in more than 240,000 locations nationwide. Learn more about how Care Credit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecredit.com/mgma-podcast. Have you heard MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Conference is going completely virtual? This week, we're giving listeners a glimpse of what to expect by welcoming featured speakers Kyle Swart and Dr. Matt Lambert for a conversation on driving accurate risk adjustment and quality performance with AI. Kyle is Chief Growth Officer of Curation Health, and Matt doubles as MD and Chief Medical Officer. Kyle, Dr. Lambert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. yeah. Uh, first of all, I want to get an idea uh, from each of you where your focus has been during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, where have you been addressing the crisis? Where has your focus been on that? Um, Kyle, let's start with you. What's what's your day-to-day and focus been like? Yeah, sure. I mean, certainly uh, the pandemic um, caused a lot of disruption to, to everything personally and professionally, globally. But our CEO, Kevin Colleton, who's a former hospital administrator um, and has been leading technology companies for a while said, we have to help organizations, our clients uh, with the, the pandemic and, and create enhancements to our platform to support them. And they need to be for free. Um, and so what we did very quickly within uh, 48 hours was made some modifications to our platform to identify um, patients who who are at the highest risk of COVID um, nineteen, and and our clients typically uh, treat Medicare Advantage patients or patients who are chronically ill. So, of course, due to some of the CDC standards and guidelines, they are at the highest risk. So, teeing up some analytics and chase lists for our clients to proactively reach out to those patients was something that we did um, within twenty four hours of of getting notification from our CEO that we need to do this. The second thing we did was to add custom rules and within our platform and EHR integrations, uh, create provider prompts to the, to the provider at the point of care. And Dr. Lambert can provide additional detail uh, and comments on the enhancements. But we 
we're charged by our CEO to say, we need to be relevant. We need to support our clients uh, in the community with this pandemic and, and let's work in lockstep with them. Additionally, like many other organizations, we closely monitor the CMS regulations and guidance related to risk adjustment, telehealth, Medicare Advantage, ACOs, to ensure then, not just in March uh, or April or May, that we were continuing to support our clients, which include both payers and provider organizations. So big picture, you know, leadership charge, but also needed to stay relevant uh, within, uh, within the space. Matt? Okay. Yeah. And Matt, um, you have already shared a really powerful image of you in full PPE. Uh, I want to thank you for the work that you've been doing there on the front line. Uh, give us an idea of what that's been like for you and where your focus has been. Oh, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, it's, I think the, the, the only two things I know about this pandemic are, uh, number one, it's, it's distributed unevenly, and number two, things are changing so rapidly. Uh, and so just trying to keep up with the changes in guidelines, the change in how long it takes a test to come back. Uh, and, uh, you know, pr protecting yourself and your, and your fellow caregivers. Uh, it's, it's, it's odd when there's a contagion around, it, suddenly your, your well-being, uh, you know, if, if there's no one takes care of the caregivers, then we're in real trouble. So, um, so it's just been very challenging uh, and rewarding at the same time around that. Fortunately, um, you know, blessed with good health. And uh, if, uh, even though I have a high chance of, of, of contracting it, I have a, a really low chance of having a bad outcome. So I just tell myself that every day when I don all the PPE and, and, and go in to do that. But on the, um, and speaking of how fast things were changing, you know, it, uh, I've been in DC now over 10, over 10 years and I've never seen uh, regulations adjusted as quickly as they were in March and April. I mean, it's a truly remarkable time. And so we've tried to match that speed, not only when I'm wearing the scrubs, but also with Curation Health on, on how we, and how we manage that. And when, when, when things were emerging out of China, uh, of, of the chronic conditions that really, you know, set you up for an adverse outcome, we realized that we were, you know, the holders of this data for, for a lot of our, our partners and to, to do some quick analytics around it uh, and, and, and not only provide chase lists, so to speak, or, or patients that are most at risk. So those are the ones that you would probably want to prioritize for in-home care, home food delivery, home medication delivery, um, uh, we've, we provided those lists up front to, uh, to our provider partners. Uh, also that we've created some rules around this so at the point of care, um, to, to know that, uh, this patient is at, uh, we have three tiers that, you know, this patient is at high risk based upon their, their disease, their, their current disease states. And then it stratifies, uh, at 60. And then there's another uh, break point in the data at, at age 80 and over. So we present those. Uh, to, to our clients as well. And then on the back end, we've also, it was, it, you know, the, 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 the regulations changed so quickly on what could be risk adjustable and a telehealth visit or an audio visual um, uh, visit is risk adjustable, but a phone call isn't. And many of our provider partners pivoted very quickly to telephone calls. Uh, and, and so, and so we are tracking those for our provider partners. So as we, as we uh, come out of this, or as this continues, as the case is looking like right now, at least we know this patient had a visit, but it was telephone. It's not going to count towards the towards the 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 VBC contract. So if that's something they, they want to go back and, and reach out to proactively later on, they can do that. Still won't be surprised if we don't have some sort of true up at the federal level around this for value value based contracting because I think it's clear it's it's um, dragging on through the summer and it's probably going to come back again with um, even stronger during the fall and winter. Mm -hmm. Matt, what it would have been some of the KPIs that you guys uh, have been looking at then uh, to kind of inform you so you can be 
flexible. You were talking about being as quick to market, so to speak, as the government has been, which often moves glacially. But as you said, they made changes very rapidly as far as opening opening up and expanding telehealth, telemedicine. So where has your focus been so you can be as nimble and as flexible as possible to meet the needs uh, of your patients? Yeah, well, it's as, as Kyle um, um as Kyle mentioned it, we, we moved quickly early on because our boss told us to do so. Uh, but since then, uh, our clients and our patients are telling us what works best for them. Uh, and again, so on the consulting side, it's we've whatever we can do to help them track these chronic conditions and how they're managing them. On the, on the clinical side, in my clinical practice, the, the telehealth has proved invaluable uh, for, for not only, uh, for, for managing COVID patients outside of the hospital, because the, uh, you know, still, still as, as scary as this is 80% of folks, uh, who, who contract this managed at home with supportive care. Um, uh, another 15% need to be on oxygen and you can still send them home with oxygen, do follow-up visits via telemedicine on a regular basis. Uh, if you're, if you're really ahead of the curve, you can have some RPM, some remote, remote patient monitoring associated with it. Uh, and, and, and as the pulse ox or the oxygen level is the greatest predictor of when someone's getting in trouble with that. So, so really just um, trying to be as nimble as we can, both uh, with curation uh, uh, and, and on, in my clinical practice right now. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, you mentioned a couple of things there, um, value-based care and uh, technology. Uh, Kyle, I want to turn this to you because you guys have had that at the forefront of being innovative at your practice and in your consulting. Um, you're developing a presentation right now uh, that's going to be delivered at MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Conference in October that session, you've, you have a title for it, Driving Accurate Risk Adjustment in Quality Performance with AI. Um, I just want to ask you then, Kyle, what did you identify in your practice to have you focus on that topic? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, Matt and our leadership team have been around risk adjustment and value-based care before it was really cool 10 plus years ago uh, and had developed a, a technology uh, that was a HCC calculator and an HCC is essentially the currency for risk adjustment and value-based care for most of those contracts. And so as we um, uh, met with our clients and we took previous learnings, we realized that uh, we needed to empower end users with artificial intelligence and machine learning technology to make them more efficient. If you think about healthcare, healthcare has the most data uh, in the universe. And there's a lot of lab values and data elements that could lead to a, a patient's clinical condition and clinical status to change. But we also saw growth uh, and need for our uh, clients in the ambulatory setting where they were uh, uh, embarking on um, an ambulatory clinical documentation improvement initiatives to support their value-based care contracts. And historically, CDI or clinical documentation improvement has been an inpatient function and recently started to expand in the outpatient setting and is critical to be successful in your risk adjustment and quality program uh, performance. And so what we set out to do was to pair uh, humans with artificial intelligence to support reviewing and analyzing droves of clinical data. EMR data, claims data, third-party data, HIE data, scan documents, 
to identify um, opportunities for, for clinical capture, recapture of previous conditions, identify new medical conditions based on a lab value that could be on a scan document and not in the medical record, to potentially identify a chronic disease that is not being treated and not being cared for by Dr. Lambert and his peers. So what we wanted to do was take a manual process and pair that with assistive technologies like AI and machine learning with complex clinical rules to empower end users who are part of the pre-visit planning process uh, to be successful and allow them to grow and scale into various risk adjustment and quality programs. So we felt very, very strongly about pairing humans with AI we're very bullish on AI, and we, we believe the market is, is headed in that direction. But also, uh, there's a lot of false positives, and there's still room for growth in the AI space. So how do we, how do we take that human and pair it with, with AI and machine learning to ensure that what we're putting in front of the providers has a very high accuracy rate of over 90%? And as providers adopt technologies and, and the EMR has been adopted, some, some, some better than others, and I'll let Dr. Lambert talk about that. But if you're going to ask the providers to change their process or document a little bit differently, we need to make it really easy for them. And that's where uh, the fusion of human and AI in the pre-visit planning, planning process makes it easier for providers to document those at the point of care because you're surfacing things that are clinically relevant and um, sometimes finding a needle in the haystack on, on clinical conditions that they didn't have time to address in a 17, seven to 13 minute clinical encounter. Yeah, Kyle, I wanted to follow up with you real quick here. You were talking, you mentioned a needle in a haystack and it goes back to that idea that there's no shortage of data and information out there in healthcare. So how do you mine that data? How do you find that needle in the haystack without just tremendous challenges and, and impediments to getting there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's, that's the secret sauce. And I think that's the challenge that many healthcare organizations have, have faced today is they have access to tons of data, but what do we do with it? And, um, and so what, what we've set out to do again is how do we ingest various data sets, claims, EMR, third-party data, HIE scan documents, using the latest technology, run that through a complex set of clinical and quality rules to essentially create a funnel. We, we make the analogy that you know, if you walk into a super Walmart and you have uh, no grocery list, you're likely gonna be wandering the aisles. But if you have a grocery list of, of 10 things, that you know exactly where they are, what the point of reference is, where it came from, what the previous diagnosis was. You can be efficient in your pre-documentation planning, thus resulting in more efficient care at the point of care for those providers. So it, it is a challenge. And, and again, I think with ingesting that much data, there is likely a, a, an opportunity for false positives. And if we don't have a human reviewing some of that based on sensitivity and specificity thresholds, then we're going to pass things on to the provider that they might, may not see as clinically relevant. And what's important is if you think about the EHR, the EHR is just looking at what was documented in that EHR. If you're thinking about treating a patient holistically, what if they go to, uh, what if they go to a cardiologist um, uh, an endocrinologist outside of that health system. 
we need to get those records and bring those through so that the primary care doc or whoever is responsible or at risk for that patient population has full disposal of that information. Additionally, if we bring data in and we use AI and machine learning, the needle in the haystack could be that we didn't know that their A1C values had increased. We don't know that they're on home oxygen. Um, that was all brought in through third-party non-EMR data that allows us to be a little bit more specific in how we address and care for those patients. All that brings clinical value, results in better clinical outcomes, but also when you're in a risk-adjusted value-based contract, um, you do need to show the complexity of your patient population to be reimbursed appropriately. Okay, thanks for that. Matt, I wanted to turn to you now. We've had some correspondence leading up to this podcast, and in one of those, you wrote that as providers navigate the journey to value-based care, um, they face new expectations related to risk-based contracts. Just want to delve into that. What are those new expectations? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I think I'll start with, we're asking um, providers um, to do something that they weren't trained to do, and they're using a tool that was, wasn't designed for what we're asking them to do. So a, a layer below that is, you know, most providers, uh, at least ones who have been out of residency more than a couple of years, were provided or were, were trained how to document in an E&M code or a fee-for-service world. Uh, and then we have adopted electronic health records that were designed to produce a bill uh, and configure the note uh, uh, in a fee-for-service world. So it's been a really big pivot, uh, both from the provider and technology side, uh, to do this. So, so that's added work to the docs, right? Uh, you know, uh, added uh, uh, work to the point of care, or in some cases, if you you know read a lot of literature, you know, an hour or two at home in the evening, uh, of where you're um, uh, adjusting your your documentation. Um, there are uh, a lot of our a lot of our providers are working in a in a split world, right? Uh, they've got uh, their value based care contracts, which they don't know the nuances of that, mixed in with their fee for service patients. So if I see a fee for service patient, I'm behaving one way. If I'm seeing a patient who's in a value based care program, uh, I'm, I'm behaving another way and documenting a, a different way. Uh, and and it's and sometimes sometimes within one, a practice, you'll have three or four different contracts that'll have different quality incentives associated with that. So it makes it uh, it, it makes it really challenging to, uh, to, to figure out what is what. And so we try to do all of that with services and technology before the visit and really funnel that down to what are the priorities that are aligned to the value-based contract just to help drive that, that adoption of that. And then finally, and, and I, I, we could talk the, the entire podcast about, about how we tie physician comp to this. Um, Kyle and I have lived this world and lived it for a while, and we're not sure exactly what, 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 what the best way to do that is. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and physicians are just like uh, anyone else. They tend to behave the way they're incentivized to behave. And, uh, and so that's going to be, uh, we will see, we'll, we'll see value-based care go from the, you know, go from the 10% to the 90% or really move along the adoption curve when we finally figure out what, what, what makes the most sense with that. And that requires providers and payers and the CFO, everyone getting alignment on that. And that's, and that's really a big challenge right now. Yeah. Uh, walk us through then what role technology is playing in help you, helping you to achieve these goals. Where is technology? What are the platforms needed? And how do you make all of that work in this program? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, we, uh, what we do with, uh, with, with the Curation Health platform is, uh, is again, try to, to uh, move all of this upstream uh, to a pre-visit review 
driven primarily by, uh, uh, by AI or, or by the platform. And we're very bullish on AI, but quite frankly, we're just not there yet. Uh, and we've learned through the years of doing this that the quickest way to lose physician buy-in is to put a lot of uh, false positives in front of them. So, so we, we, we created some, some pretty intelligent rules that, um, that analyzed uh, the patient's claims and clinical data. We presented that prior to the visit for a human review to help validate something against the electronic health record, maybe remove a duplication. Uh, and then and then present that to the provider within the workflow. That's the other hard lesson we've learned. If if the minute the minute the provider has to you know minimize their their EMR and go to an outside source or log into another platform, uh, you've really lost a, a lot of the buy-in associated with that. So so pairing the AI with with a, a human intervention before the provider's over there uh, um, allows us to um, uh, to to get better and better as we go through this to the point where we can identify maybe one out of every 10 patient visits, a, a new condition uh, that the provider, hasn't, um, uh, the, the provider hasn't been exposed to that information before. And then the other thing too is less is more, strangely. Um, you know, there are 65,000 ICD-10 codes, uh, but about 10,000 of them uh, apply directly to value-based care models. Uh, and you know, when you're busy, you get behind and you click on the first diagnosis you see, and that might make a lot of sense clinically, and it's probably not gonna change how you manage that patient, but when, when the payer's looking at it on the other side, that's not one of the 10,000 codes. So therefore you're not gonna get the, the receive the, the, the credit for managing a patient that that's complex. So, um, so, so really focusing it and really integrating it at the, at, at the point of care. And then finally, we're, we still need people to do this to a certain, to a certain extent. Right, thank you. Um, Kyle, what are the certain platforms or technologies that you would recommend to our audience that can make this work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to, to piggyback on Matt's comments. I mean, we, before we, you know, officially launched Curation Health, we, we did a national walkabout and we met with dozens of high-performing, risk-bearing physician groups and payers to understand workflow and technology. And what was interesting, they were using um, various AI solutions, analytics, data warehouse, EMRs, um, population health management tools. I mean, the full gamut. And our, our, you know, our conclusion was that it works, but it's not efficient. The current approach was siloed. It was not cohesive. And if you think about organizations that were successful in that national walkabout, they were, um, they were operating as a value-based care team. And what, what we identified was that they were um, using analytical tools to scrub the data to identify opportunities they would then load that inside the EMR. Where that was loaded was to be determined and, and, and contingent upon the EMR that they were using. They had th third-party HCC calculators that were bolt-ons. They had natural language processing solutions uh, to scan documents and leveraged OCR to turn data into you know, meaningful information. They had quality solutions to support STARS and HEDIS measures. Um, and at the end of the day, all of those were costly. Uh, all of those were used independently. And I think two key pieces, three pieces uh, of the equation were left out. They were focused solely on tech. Well, let's talk about the end users. And so the people that are doing the pre-visit planners aren't experts in AI. They're not experts in EMR implementation. They're experts in clinical documentation. They're experts in uh, internal medicine and primary care. They're experts in coding. And so what we found was each one of those um, 
value-based care teammates needed the data in a different way, right? And so the technologies that you use uh, could vary based on, uh, on those roles. So for example, we would leverage deep, you would want to leverage deep AI and analytics and a rules engine to take all of that data and move it through the funnel so that that ambulatory pre-visit uh, CDI team, nurse, physician, um, is super efficient in what they do. You would then leverage integration capabilities with the EMR. And the provider doesn't need to know uh, that AI was used on the front end. They just need to know that it's clinically relevant. And then making sure that on the back end, you're able to use NLP and some other assistive technologies to make sure you're capturing the appropriate code. But what I think overall is, is, is needed and what I think we fill uh, the gap in at Curation is a platform that takes you from pre-visit to point of care to post-visit pre-claim and, and couples all of those solutions into, uh, into a single solution. And so you know, you're going to want to think about as a, as a physician organization, how do I minimize the technology that we have? Because we're over-teched right now. Uh, and how do we leverage the tools we have today? And how do we make this more cohesive workflow platform that enables each end user with the appropriate information along the journey? Um, and again, you know, I think AI and machine learning, uh, it'd be great if you could hit a button, analyze 12 million rows of claims data, push it to the provider. Doc Lambert agrees 98% of the time. No need to fix any coding on the back end. Um, you know, we'd have robots running healthcare. And so um, I think, again, over time, as we get more comfortable with some of the data, we'll, we'll start to realize that AI can be used more than a human, but you're still at a 50-50 split, uh, I would say, today. Yeah, you, you said an interesting term there. You said we're over-teched already. Um, kind of elaborate on that. I, I think it makes sense logically, but I just want to get a better understanding of what you mean by that and how we can utilize tech, but not allow it to yeah. uh, kind of take us over, so to speak. You know, as, as a recovering consultant, you spend a lot of time looking at people, process and technology and, and having done vendor selections and evaluations of, of large health healthcare systems ecosystem and, and Matt being a chief medical information officer at large academics and, and large public hospitals, you realize that oftentimes technology is purchased in a silo to, to fix a very acute situation. And what we're very quick to do is to solve, say, I need to solve this pre-visit problem. Let's go buy a piece of tech. Done. I need to fix physician adoption at the point of care. Spend six to 12 months on bringing in a third-party HCC calculator for provider adoption, only to get you a small amount of incremental value, only to get a small amount of physician adoption. Oh, we got to fix the coding workflow. Okay, we bring in uh, a, a computer-assisted coding platform. We bring in um, another third-party NLP solution. That's a lot to manage uh, a, a workflow and a process. And, and a lot of times, there hasn't been the appropriate workflow, the people in the process, to look at what do we need to do to be successful. So what we do is we bolt on tech, on top of tech, on top of tech, and what, what you have is just continued frustration by the providers. And it's most important to understand in a risk-adjusted world, 
it doesn't matter what you do pre-visit and it doesn't matter what you code. If the doctor didn't document it, it didn't count. And so all of the, the pre and the post is important, but we have to make sure that we're minimizing the disruption, not overtaking the providers at the point of care so they can focus on clinically relevant opportunities, patient care outcomes, particularly if they only have seven to 13 minutes. So, you know, this overtech concept has come from years of consulting and just looking at current organizations we're working with today saying, wait, you guys can get rid of four platforms? Yes, and here's how we do it. Okay, great. And so that's been a benefit, but not every organization has the luxury uh, to do that. Yeah, it, you know, we were talking about overtaxed, but we're uh, in the healthcare community already overtaxed with uh, so much chaos and change um, and conflict right now, just trying to to get our arms around uh, COVID-19, how to get it under control. So what are the action steps then that a practice can take to uh, efficiently implement a program like the one you guys are talking about? Yeah, Matt, I'll, I'll jump in and, and uh, you can certainly uh, provide additional context. But, you know, number one is if there's not leadership, both on the administrative and clinical side, if there's not buy-in, if there's not a physician champion, um, if there's not a vision to expand their current value-based care programs, then, you know, you really need to take a, a good hard look at the organization and say, you know, we, we will play in the value-based care arena, but we're not going all in. Uh, because it is an investment. It's an investment in time and resources. So uh, if you have passed those first two check, mark, uh, check marks, there's buy-in, there's a vision to expand their value-based care and risk-adjusted portfolio, then start then with the evaluation of your current value-based care performance. Take a look at the internal tools that you have today. Think about what are the performance goals that you aspire to get to. All value-based care contracts are tied to shared savings or some level of performance. Where do you stand today? And what are the gaps to get you there? And then take a look at the people in process and the tech. What tools, platform, resources are needed to obtain the goal? How do we expand the use of AI? Maybe it exists in the four walls today. Maybe you do a pilot. Um, many organizations that we've worked with, we've uh, helped them with the motto, um, think big, start small. And that's really important when you're trying to expand or even get into uh, value-based care contracts. I think once you can get into that routine, then continue to track, monitor, measure, and adjust as needed. I think that's really important that this uh, is a, a world now, a healthcare world, particularly in value-based care, where we know CMS is creating new models uh, and really wanting to move towards uh, more uh, value-based contracts that you need to continue to evaluate workflows and tools, resources to actually get you uh, moving to the next level of performance. And it's really important that organizations embrace that this is a continuous improvement exercise across the board. And so if you get the buy-in, you have the physician champions, if you can take the extra step and figure out physician comp, you know, more power to you and continue down that path. Because I do see, we see, uh, you know, nationally a lot of movement by independent physician groups wanting to move into value-based care contracts. And it is going to put some pressure on the large IDNs. Uh, because those independent 
private equity backed groups are able to move a little bit faster. Yeah, okay. Cal, Cal Matt, did you want to add something to that? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I agree with the um, message has to come from the top. Um, so it's got to be a, a priority of the organization, both operationally and clinically. Um, the, the, the organizations that we see best at this are ones who fully adopt the model. When you, tr do, when you dabble in value-based care, but still uh, are tied to a fee-for-service world, we don't see, uh, you know, obviously there's some uh, mixed priorities there. And, and then quite frankly, just the time is now. Uh, I mean, you probably lost 40% of your revenue. Um, you're never going to see more leniency from CMS, from payers. You're never going to see more willingness from your finance, operational, and clinical folks willing to try something different. Um, uh, and so, um, um, you know, let's make lemonade here um, um, when it comes to VBC. Yeah. Matt, uh, sticking with you, what have you learned? What has surprised you from implementing this program in your practice? Yeah, um, the, the, a lot of the a lot of the themes we've touched on here. Uh, the 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 machine alone uh, isn't there yet, uh, um, and getting false positives and, and asking providers to act on those is just a really uh, is one of the quickest ways to lose buy-in. So so pairing people and, and technology to do this, this concept of the team is very important. Physicians aren't traditionally trained to be part of the team, but, but now we, we need to be leaders of the team, quite frankly, and work together both with, with the coding team, with the pre-visit team, with the care management team, with more so with the nursing staff. Um, uh, again, the, the, the commitment to it, uh, the aligning incentives um, uh, around um, uh, aligning workflows and uh, um, aligning financial incentives to all work one way. And then I think probably the biggest surprise for us at Curation Health has been just um, how much information we've had to wrangle to do this effectively. Uh, we're, we're, it's, a lot of organizations aren't set up to do this technically, and it requires a, a dedicated team to really to, to almost serve as middleware between different parts of the organization, between the, 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 uh, the, the CDI, the coders, the clinicians, the payers, uh, the claims. Uh, it requires a lot of work um, behind the scenes to, to, make this, uh, to make this really work. Yeah. Um, Kyle, I want to turn to you here. Uh, what are the KPIs that you're studying here to make sure this is working and to figure out where you can continue to make some changes and some improvements as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, you know, if, if you don't establish benchmarks and KPIs, you're, you're pretty much at, at, at fault uh, for not doing that. So we, we encourage all of our clients that we work with even before we go live to, to identify 10 to 15 different metrics that we know we can track and, and, and will help drive um, clinical outcomes and performance. And, and those typically are bucketed into, you know, those three areas. So pre-visit. So anyone that's doing any of the ambulatory pre-visit planning, the ambulatory CDI, we would want to look at efficiency. So how efficient is our process in terms of ingesting the data and presenting information to them so they can, uh, you know, they can look at 10 patients per hour versus in the manual world, two patients per hour. We want to look at CDI efficiency, particularly um, if this is a new program, one that has been moved or is being shifted from the inpatient side to the ambulatory side, and they're not inexpensive resources to, to staff. And so you want to make sure that there's, there's an ROI and there's an efficiency gain there. Certainly, uh, we want to track visits completed. So a lot of this is, is contingent upon annual wellness visits or follow-up visits. 
and then able to capture uh, and recapture all the codes from the previous year if you're in a risk-based contract and identify new suspect medical conditions. We want to see how many visits that takes. We want to see that we're uh, really utilizing the annual wellness visit the way it should be and that our providers are uh, adopting and addressing uh, the, the metrics as needed. Certainly, uh, risk adjustment factor, RAF, is, is, um, is a really important metric that, that is tied into your value-based care contract. So, so we look at uh, performance over the entire patient population, what was recaptured, what was new. I think uh, as we look at quality and closing quality gaps, we want to know what was closed and what was addressed. And I think when we think about the subjectivity of, of a provider, at the end of the day, it is their responsibility to treat, uh, diagnose, accept, confirm any conditions that uh, a human or a machine puts in front of them. And so provider engagement is critical. So we would want to track conditions addressed uh, or dismissed. So if you're just using AI and you're pushing a bunch of stuff to a provider at the point of care and there's a 90% dismiss rate, there's something wrong with the machine uh, or something wrong with the algorithm. So we want to be able to use that for a combination of human intervention and education for providers, as well as how do we continue to fine tune, uh, fine tune the machine. And then certainly, you know, auditing and querying functions to make sure that if we are querying a provider, they're getting back to the medical coder in a timely, in a timely manner to ensure compliant documentation and to avoid uh, any government RAD-V audits. And the last is, which is really important, is physician satisfaction and adoption. You know, again, back to the over tech, you think about the physician satisfaction score on EMRs, it's relatively low. You think about physician burnout, it's extremely high. I, I can't wait to see the numbers, and I'm not happy to see the numbers after COVID, but they're going to be uh, exponentially higher than, than we've ever imagined. So if we're asking the providers to go into the COVID battle and pandemic battle on top of all the other pressures, we need to make it as easy as humanly possible for them to address this. And so we, you know, with the direction of Dr. Lambert and, and other clinicians that, that we partner with, uh, our client partners, we, we want to make sure that the physicians are adopting it. So physician satisfaction is, is always going to be a key metric uh, to the health and well-being of your program, your practice, and overall your tech stack. Yeah. Uh, Matt, as an MD, uh, I'm curious to hear what your uh, satisfaction has been with the program. And if you have hit some challenges, any impediments along the way, um, how have you overcome that? How have you worked through that? No, everything has been perfectly planned and flawlessly executed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it starts at the top. Kevin uh, Colleton, our CEO, has infinite patient for, and we call it iteration. We don't call it trial and error. We call it iteration. And, and Kevin has sure. uh, has created the culture uh, where we uh, we look at uh, everything as a challenge and, and an opportunity to do better with it. Uh, we focus on people. Um, um, again, how do, how do we make the technology uh, do what what the the people who are doing the work? How can how can we make things easier for them? Um, so so always focus on people. Process second, technology third. Quite frankly. Um, which is odd to say for, for a technology company. Um, and then the, um, uh, and then, you know, listen to our end users and ways that we can make it better uh, is, is the, uh, is the other piece around it. So it's, um, it's, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's a culture, it's a mindset. As Kyle said, we're recovering consultants. So we're, we're kind of wired that way anyway. 
Um, but uh, it's it's really been fascinating to uh, to go through this journey. Great, yeah. This this has been a great conversation, and I, I think very helpful to our audience. So I want to give you guys each uh, an opportunity to provide some final thoughts um, about risk and quality programs. Uh, Kyle, let's start with you. Yeah. So, so thanks again for, for having us. We, we also enjoyed the, the conversation. I think just a couple of closing thoughts. And, and again, uh, we've been on this national walkabout and met with some great organizations, high performing and those aspire to be there. But as it relates to, as it relates to AI and machine learning, I think, you know, you really need to identify a platform uh, that leverages AI, machine learning, uh, natural language processing, and clinical rules, because creating a siloed approach is both costly and inefficient. Um, and I think it's important to make sure that you're enabling the provider with the appropriate information at the point of care. Overall, value-based care adoption uh, and achieving performance expectations is a continuous improvement exercise. It's not a, we're going to do really great things in 2020 and let it ride in 21. Uh, you're constantly having to iterate on uh, the changes to the upcoming programs. Uh, we know that CMS is likely going to continue to change or um, add additional programs along the way. And then I think the last thing that's really important is, you know, before you go all in, really make sure that you have the administrative and physician support and that they're willing to make the financial investments in AI or calculators or NLP, whatever the journey uh, and, and tech stack you decide that's best for your organization. Make sure that they're willing to support the operations, the clinical staff, uh, and the technology team to get you to where you need to be, rather than uh, saying it was a, as a very fun exercise uh, in a pilot. So uh, those are just a couple things, big picture for me. I'll turn it over to Dr. Lambert. Oh, I, Kyle, I think I'm just going to get philosophical. Uh, you know, the pan, the pandemic has, has exposed gaps in every, in every part of our, our culture, quite frankly, in healthcare especially. Um, and at the end of the day, we've got people taking care of people. Um, and, and the way that we, we have to do that more efficiently. Um, and, and the way we're going to do that is combining people and technology. So, so people can, so patients can get better care from their providers. Uh, and, and so, so that's my high level view of, of, of where we are with value-based care. Well, Matt, Kyle, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and for sharing these insights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Care Credit for sponsoring this week's show. To learn more about how Care Credit is helping providers deliver a better patient financial experience, visit carecredit.com slash MGMA podcast. Also, thanks to our guest, Kyle Swartz and Dr. Matt Lambert. You can hear them speak at MGMA's Virtual Medical Practice Excellence Conference, October 19th through 21st. For more information or to register, visit mgma.com slash MPEC. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. 
Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.